Hey everybody, welcome to the 78th episode of the JDO Show. I am your host, J. David Osborne, and today on the show we have Jared Middleton, the author of Dark and Saw, which is out now from Design Books. I really, really enjoyed this one. We get into talking about that kind of early on in the podcast, so um, for this book in particular, I could definitely give my stamp of recommendation. I feel like it should be checked out. Hey, did you notice that we have fucking um, theme music now? Hell yeah, dude. My little brother put that together. He's a pretty talented musician. He lives in uh, Chicago. He likes to live that that city life that I'm so not fond of. But he's a cool kid, smart kid. Uh, he's actually he's not a kid anymore. I need to not be so disrespectful. He's a he's a grown man. His brain is completely grown. I think he's 26 now. So um, I was fucking stupid at 26, but he's he's smart. He's out here making good theme songs for his big brother uh, because his big brother can do a few things uh, which are let's see I can read books um, now I can I've learned that I can do push-ups which is fun um, and I can also uh, make a douche out of myself in point zero five seconds it's my talents it's what I'm good at anyway back to the subject at hand we have mr. Middleton he is um, he had mentioned that he felt like we were eerily similar, and I do feel like there's an element of this podcast to, to, when you put two Furbies next to each other and they start talking, um, because we our, our interests are, are very uh, similar. So we talk a lot about uh, Carl Jung's Red Book, we talk about dreams, we talk about psychedelics, we talk about um, adjusting our our brain patterns in order to better confront the powers that be. Anyway, I feel like that's a pretty enticing start to the episode. Uh, listen to this groovy tune, this new theme song that I have. I might even add some vocals to it too, so I can just start it off and it'd be like or something cool like that. I hope your day is going swell and I hope you enjoy the 78th episode of the JDO Show with Jared Middleton. Hey, you there? Yeah, man, I'm here. How are you doing? Perfect. Cool. I'm good. How you doing? Oh, you know, I'm just here, uh, just lighting some incense. I don't know if it's like, I don't know if Mercury's in retrograde. I don't know exactly what the issue is going on here, but there's been all kinds of weird technical stuff today, so I'm blessing this podcast with incense so that we can actually get some shit done here. You know what? I'll, I'll double down on you. I'll light them, too. Hell yeah, bro. What kind of incense do you have? We'll combine forces. I've got, I think uh, my wife's got jasmine honey. Oh, that right sounds now. good. That sounds good. I do the, I do frankincense. Old school. Nice. Yeah. Uh, let me go, let me go light it. Me, Hell uh, yeah, dude. Yeah. All right. The pyres are lit. Hell yeah, dude. Well, um, <laughs> hey, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Dude, I've, been listening, I've been listening to it for a while. Dude, I gotta say one thing. First of all, um, you are probably the first guest that I've had on the show who had such a fucking comprehensive list of things that we could talk about. You sent me this Facebook message, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I don't even have to do any fucking work. We can literally just go 
through this list that you sent me. But I, I well, I figured, yeah, I figured like if we were in person or you know having drinks or something, that's what we were. Oh yeah, probably talked about anyway. For sure, for sure. But before we get to all that, you know, I mean, you listen to the show, so you know, I don't necessarily like to talk that much about books. But the reason why I don't normally is because I'm not interested. But I have one thing that I'm particularly interested in pertaining to Dark and Saw. So I figured I would I would ask it, and um, that's how we can yeah. start it off, all right? Let it rip. So, okay. So my question, and really my only question, because if people don't know, it's kind of, uh, I would say it's definitely like a Southern Gothic in like the tradition of William Gay and those those types of writers. Am I, am I missing the mark there with that, or would you say that's accurate? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Cool. So basically, it's intensely lyrical and um, poetic is a word I would use. Um, and so my question is, it felt to me um, while I was reading it that it moved almost more like a like a song, like a good murder ballad, than it did a book. And I'm wondering if one that makes any sense, and two, if this was maybe a book that was more inspired by music than by other books. That's a great question. Um, I, yeah, I've been actually thinking about it in that context. Even if I, even if it wasn't sort of a conscious realization while I was writing it, um, I just thought about it in that context recently because I did a, I did a large hearted boy playlist for it that's going to come out next week. Oh, cool! So it was really cool. I mean, because there's so much music in the book already. That you might know, have been it too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's about it. It, it sort of crosses right because it's it's about a family of bluegrass musicians, you know, famous, a famous, you know, patriarch that was, you know, uh, a famous bluegrass musician in the in the golden age and like the in the fifties and sixties, and then his sort of alcoholic black sheep son. Sure. Uh, so no, it was it was really interesting to frame it. I mean, music was uh, even in terms of the writing, the prose, uh, a lot of the touchstones were like ways to sort of map out the relationship between Jordan and Walker, his father and son. So I think it just sort of went from there, like almost there were like character definitions to, to, to see where they overlap and like how to define them in their, in relation to each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but no, the, the murder ballad thing is, is dead on it. I mean, it, it, it sort of does progress like a song. In the, in the yeah, because I couldn't put my finger on it at, at first, and you have to understand that I'm like hyper picky when it comes to crime fiction because that's kind of like that's where I'm, I'm I come from. You know what I mean? So I always give yeah, it's your of, yeah, I give a lot of shit to the genre. You know what I mean? Like I, a lot of people know that like I'm not a big fan of like, <clears throat> Donald Ray Pollock or Frank Bill or writers like that. You know what I mean? Because I think that they, yep. um, I'm beginning to understand. I think uh, Donald Ray Pollock and Frank Bill a little bit more the more I kind of realize that those are like if we think about it in terms of music like those are sort of like the uh new metal of crime writing you know what i mean um which i like new metal i'm yeah. not taking it i'm not taking a shit but basically i think like when i first started this book i didn't know what to make of it at first like i wasn't sure if i was gonna because i couldn't put my finger on what was different about it but for some reason about it didn't take that long maybe like 15 20 pages once i started thinking of it like oh my god like this is like this takes place like in the same world as a song would take place in. You know what I mean? Like it's not, it's not so did necessarily. That, did that help you? Did that help your perspective to, to settle into the text a bit more? Oh yeah, no, yeah. Once once that happened, once that clicked for me, um, 
I enjoyed it. I'd like pretty much, it took me like, I think two more sittings to finish the whole thing. So, but it was like leading up to that, I'd like picked it up and put it down like three or four times. You see what I'm saying? So I think it's really important to kind of like, I like that you're doing like the large hearted boy thing because it's such a fucking, it's my favorite kind of book, honestly. Like I get a little giddy about stuff like this. It's my favorite book because it's the kind of book that I end up loving. You know what I'm saying? That Like I'm not, that I don't go to it like I am going to love this and then I love it. I kind of go yeah, to it. You didn't have that expectation until when you were going into it. Right, right, exactly. So those are the ones that always tend to stick out for me because, you know, it was like I had, uh, you know, Scott McClanahan on la- uh, last time, but it's like it's one of those things where I- I've already read his books and I like knew that it was going to be good. So it kind of, mm-hmm. to me, felt like, all right, here, I'm just going to go enjoy myself, I guess, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't hurt that, that the Sarah book is amazing. Right, right, right. But yeah, but I hope I'm not, I hope I'm not being a dick or insulting, but I'm actually trying to say like a good thing. Like it really kind of like, knock my dick in the dirt and I, I think it's worth people checking out <laughs> well thanks man um no but i mean to that point i don't come out of you know genre fiction or your hard-boiled crime um you know definitely not as much as you do um you know i it, it's a bit a bit tough for me you know how the book market's so weird it's so it's so penned to genre a lot and you know like you and scott on the last podcast talked about you know like what what are literary fiction authors even doing anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I didn't set out to be a, a country noir writer, right? This was just a story, almost like a song. These are the characters. This was the setting in the Ozarks. And it, it, if anything, I mean, I'm a pretty dyed-in-the-wool literary writer, uh, but this, this was just ended up being a sort of dark, bleak country noir with, like, if anything is my own trademark, it, it just gets... Uh, more and more surreal mm-hmm. as as it goes on. So you know, like my first novella, and Dance Me Nearly was was intensely lyrical and intensely surreal. It was about the death of an Irish poet. Uh, the the novel I'm writing right now is about uh, a young professional hockey player from New England uh, who gets a vicious head hit and gets CTE and has to the the, uh, the concussion symptoms lead him spiraling into depression and an existential crisis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, like everything's going to have my, my sort of trademark, you know, penned in by darkness on all sides and like, you know, investigating surreal and uh, existential and philosophical areas. But I don't, I don't set out to be a crime or a, a noir, you know, country noir writer. That was just, that was just the story that needed to be told. Right. You know, something interesting to me, because I also tend to go towards the more surreal aspects of it, especially to me, it seems like the more violent and dark my stories get, the more surreal they get. And I have I have a kind of theory about this. Let me run it by you. Let me see what you think. I, I don't know uh, necessarily like your background or your history, um, but, you know, I'm assuming that neither of our lives get quite as dark as our characters' lives. Um Again, I'm sorry if that's not the case at all. We can totally get into that. But, no, it's an interesting concept by itself. It's but, almost like where our darkness and your character begins. Right, right, right. So like ba- a, it's like a portal. So, so basically, yeah. So I guess like where the surrealism comes in and where where I think that why it manifests are, is because it's almost like our subtle admission that we don't entirely understand what we're doing. You know, because I was thinking about it in my own stuff. And I just, I think that surrealism and um, this kind of like deep, dark, noir kind of go hand in hand because we're sort of negating this tendency that's been in 
books, particularly crime and thriller books for a while, where it's like the author has to be super knowledgeable about like the details of like the assassins lives or whatever. And to me, the surrealism is us kind of shrugging and saying like, we, we don't really, uh, we're just as lost here as you are, but we're interested in exploring. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, I always tend to, I, I think I, I tend to talk about my characters, uh, in a way where like, for lack of a better term, I think I like to bring my characters in proximity to some huge foundational elemental truths, but then just in near proximity and then like a near miss. Like either they have, you know, a sneaking suspicion that they're near the truth of their condition or a situation, uh, but but it's never consciously realized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and I feel uh, that's one, and then and then to relate it back, I, mean, I think maybe where the kind of crime or you know the dark noir crime noir touches literary fiction a bit is that um, you know it like like circling back to your own life, like if if anybody has dealt with you know uh, abuse or you know violence in their childhood or neglect, um, sickness. Uh, you know, alcoholism, cancer, divorce, mental illness, depression—you know, whatever your mm-hmm. particular particular thing might have been. Um, there's no like in the way that it sort of lodges itself in your developmental brain and like your subconscious and your unconscious mind. There was no rational causality for things in your life to get completely fucked right. at some point. Right, right, right. So I, I think surrealism comes that causality from a different way, whether it's symbolic, whether it's subconscious, whether it's, you know, tonal, whatever, uh, it comes at causality in a different way that's not rational. Dude, that's so smart, and it actually makes me think, I just finished reading uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's Fooled by Randomness, uh, and I'm kind of going into the Black Swan, and he basically uh, was a a stock trader who stopped being a stock trader uh, in order to write books on probability you know, and and the fact that a lot of shit is very, very random. And he actually makes a point in his book that if if he is going to engage in being fooled by randomness, he'd rather it be in a beautiful way, as in a poem or a work of art or whatever. So the idea kind of of, you know, the surrealism is sort of like, I guess, a a reflection of this almost not nihilistic, but um, kind of bummer outlook, I guess you could say, like they kind of go hand in hand then, right? Yeah, and it's almost, I mean, that kind of touches on a, a couple central aspects of Buddhism. Like, if the world is an illusion, the world's a dream, I'd rather be in control of being pleasantly fooled. Right, right. right? That's so smart. Yeah, that also <laughs> also makes me think of the Red Book, you know? Like, right, yeah. Like the act of imagination that. stuff. Like that, it's so interesting to me that it, maybe it's just the particular reality tunnel that I'm engaged in, but I feel like every time I turn around, uh, thinkers who I really admire are talking about the Red Book now. You know, it's been out for eight years, I think. And you only notice people talking about it recently? Uh, okay, so I remember people talking about it when it first came out. Um, but I also remember that when it first came out, I was in like my early 20s, and the, the thought of buying a $200 hardbound book was so... <laughs> was like, yeah. yeah, Yeah, exactly. So uh, when I actually went on Amazon... A few um, months ago, to to purchase the Red Book, I had heard about it in 
I think on like a message board and it had reminded me that it existed and I was like, Oh, okay, cool. You know, I'll go buy it. And then like right after I see that, um, this website that I frequent is holding a course on active imagination, like which I signed up for. Um, and just, just different random people are like posting about the red book. So I don't know, there might be some kind of weird zeitgeisty thing that's going on there. Well, I hope so. I mean, we need it, right? Yeah, yeah. So have you have you read it? Have you have you studied it? Because I'm just getting into it, so I'm I'm a newbie at this shit. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough to grab the large format, the first printing oh, when it came yeah. up. That's so. Rad. So I mean, I, I I covet it. Like, I my wife's a welder and a metal worker, cool. and and I was like, uh, when when we got it, I was like, can you do me a favor? Can you can you weld me, you know, some esoteric looking, magical stand for this thing no way yeah. dude that's so epic <laughs> so because i was you know like i you know when you're like in in old you know antiquarian libraries where you, they have like either the the dictionary or the bible or, or a holy you know yeah, like a stand yeah. for a holy book that that sort of lets it sit open so i kind of when i got it for the, that first year i kind of let it sit out and it kind of governed it was like a center of gravity it just governed everything for when i had it it just felt like a magical book. I mean, partly because of their history, right? It was right, locked away right. for for seventy years and was left to the trust. And, mm-hmm. uh, but no, I, I've read it all the way through, uh, probably once or twice, and then I've I've gone back and picked at it um, for the past couple of years. Do you have any particular favorite passages? I, w- I was almost thinking if you wanted to, like, I didn't know if you, how much you wanted to talk about it. I wanted to like. I want to ask you if you had a favorite because you're reading it recently, or we could like just pick it, pick it up, and open it at random. Oh, dude, <laughs> this is totally up my up my alley, dude. <laughs> do I you want it? Yeah, honestly, I don't really have. I've been, I haven't marked up my copy at all because I, it's even though it's not like the big book or whatever, it just feels like a Bible. And I think maybe my Protestant upbringing is just like I have to be very careful with Bibles, you know, um, but. Yeah, no, I, I basically I don't have a favorite passage yet. So, all right, I just I just grabbed it and I opened it to a random page. Okay, cool. Go. Do you want, do you want me to read a part? Yeah, 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 and then I'll do it. All right, uh, I just opened to page two thirty nine, descent into hell in the future. <laughs> Tight. Hold on, two thirty nine. You said. Yep. This is so rad. This is the best podcast ever. <laughs> oh, I think I might have a different version than you then. Yeah. No, because my, mine's the reader's edition. So anyway, just go ahead. All right. Well, I'm in uh, folder three slash four. I don't know what reference, how yours is set up. No, it's different. Yeah, it's different. Go for it's it. It's different. All right. Yeah. Uh, I, I, so I, I opened to it and halfway down the passage, I went to... Uh, Life does not come from events, but from us. Everything that happens outside has already been. Therefore, whoever considers the event from outside always sees only that it already was and that it is always the same. But whoever looks from inside knows that everything is new. The events that happen are always the same, but the creative depths of man are not always the same. Events signify nothing. They signify only in us. We create the meaning of events. The meaning is is and always was artificial. We create it. Oh, well, that goes into stoicism. That that feels very stoical. <laughs> it's 
It does. And also, I mean, you know, we don't have to talk about the books too much. Um, but, I mean, that's so much this line of thinking from Jung is, is so embedded in my, you know, how it relates to the structure of myth and how myth informed metaphor. I mean, that's essentially every a huge well that I drew from for Dark and Blood. Oh, yeah. So it relates perfectly. Totally, totally, dude. And like, I actually, I've been thinking about this in an, in a, in a way where, um, okay, so Rios has been doing these classes with Lydia Yuknovich, which, uh, yep. corporeal to, writing. Yeah, cor- exactly. Corporeal writing, um, which seemed to be, um, I actually, when I went to go pick her up this weekend, like everybody who I talked to, um, was like, just, oh, we feel drained, you know, because it's almost like this sort of therapy. Right. And so I haven't entirely built this bridge yet, but one of the things I think that interests me particularly about the red book and active imagination exercises is this kind of beautiful meeting of, of, of therapy and writing, you know, because I have this idea that everybody should probably write and everybody should play with story. But I think, I don't necessarily think everybody needs to be a published author, right? Like I like to paint and stuff, but I don't necessarily show people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Sometimes I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Right. You know, to be stupid enough to make a career out of this. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. For sure. For sure. But you know, the the arts are there. You know, they're a liberating force for everybody. Everybody should engage with it at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I'm, I'm thinking. I feel like somewhere in the red book, there's something that will like build that bridge. Basically, I just have to like kind of study it and think about it for a while. Yeah, I, I like uh, the idea of therapeutic writing just for your average person who ever wants to use that tool for themselves. I always sort of associate, you know, journal writing or, you know, entry level writing. People always go to the five senses, the who, what, where, when, why, whenever people just sort of say, well, write something about yourself. That, that, that young uh, excerpt applies so well to it because most people look at events and then themselves from the outside in. And then if you train people to write in that therapeutic way, like I think the Red Book is the most one of the most accurate uh, presentations we've ever had of somebody's subconscious or somebody's symbolic uh, unconscious mm-hmm. it, it, entirely. Like so, if you could if you could uh, help people, you know, access their subconscious and their unconscious minds, you know, I think that that's where the root of therapy comes from too. Why do you think it took so long for this thing to be published? <laughs> I don't know. I read something about like young young was either scared uh I think like the fractious nature nature of uh his the end of his relationship with Freud and all like you know the Freud loyalists that I mean I guess he didn't get teaching jobs and they were like sabotaging him when he went fully toward the mythic and and the universal um, and the spiritual, uh, I think he was afraid of like professional backlash, but then he said mm. something else that he, he didn't think the world was ready for it. Right. Right. And that sounds like on the surface, that sounds like such a dick thing to say, but he's, <laughs> he's so right though. I mean, really like people aren't ready for this shit now, you know? No, no, it's true. People still, like you said, maybe people are still, you know, just, just starting to wade in those waters. I mean, you could make an argument that like, you know, Finnegan's Wake is sort of another book like that, and people weren't ready for it then, and Joyce just fucking published it anyway. Yeah, I think that shit is <laughs> rad, and I, I feel like there's books like that now, but it's so hard. It's it feels like a weird gamble to like make a call. It's just kind of why you just kind of have 
have to have um, aesthetic integrity, I guess, like with just like calling shit how you see it, you know, because, uh, yeah, there are some books out there where it's it's like this is probably ahead of its time. And then there are books where I'm like, this is probably just bad. And I just calls them like I sees them. But uh, I found this I, I found this one thing I want to read. It's the opening of the egg. Yeah. Um, on the evening of the third day, I kneel down on the rug and carefully open the egg. Something resembling smoke rises up from it, and suddenly Isdubar is standing before me, enormous, transformed, and complete. His limbs are whole, and I find no trace of damage on them. It's as if he had awoken from a deep sleep. He says, Where am I? How narrow it is here. How dark, how cool. Am I in the grave? Where was I? It seemed to me as if I had been outside in the universe. Over and under me was an endlessly dark star-glittering sky, and I was in a passion of unspeakable yearning. Streams of fire broke from my radiating body. I surged through blazing flames. I swam in a sea that wrapped me in living fires, full of light, full of longing, full of eternity. I was ancient and perpetually renewing myself, falling from the heights to the depths, and world glowing from the depths to the heights, hovering around myself amidst glowing clouds as raining embers beat down like the foam of the surf, engulfing myself in stifling heat, embracing and rejecting myself in a boundless gape. Where was I? I was completely sun, S-U-N. And then, O oh, Isdubar, divine one, how wonderful you are healed. Healed? Was I ever sick? Who speaks of sickness? I was sun, completely sun. I am the sun. How fuck that? That's so much better than the Bible. <laughs> That's so good. Isn't that like metal? It's like halfway. It's like psychology, and then like also like black metal lyrics. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if he if he could be talking about you know astral projection, or a lucid dream, or a hallucinatory state. Like, I mean, he is he talking about like a spirit or a, like a, a homunculus, like being born out of the egg? Yeah. Yeah. That is so. That is so weird that we're reading these at random because I won't like spoil too much about Darkensaw, but the, uh, my 200-year-old mountain man sidekick, mm-hmm. Obadiah Cobb, Obadiah is, a, is a, a fully grown homunculus that speaks the language of everything in the world. Yeah. Uh, see? See? <laughs> there it is. There yeah. it is. Oh, and it's so weird. Like, see, um, there was this quote from... Did you Have you ever read The Invisibles? Uh, weirdly, uh, no, but I'm staring at book two of it right now my wife's reading it as we speak like oh dude that's what's on our nightstand yeah yeah well there's a i have an invisibles tattoo so i'm kind of a fanboy. oh you're um, in okay yeah yeah and uh uh basically there's this line in there that it talks about you know it's a it's talking about synchronicity and coincidence and things like that and the the way that it was described in the invisibles is like a whirlpool right where the closer and closer you get to the center of importance right the closer and closer things get together and the faster and faster they, they, they hit each other. So we're, we're about to come upon a big realization here because there's too many too synchronicities many. going let's on. Let's keep right going. Now. Let's just yeah. get weird. Yeah. Let's just get really, well, before we do that, I've been drinking a lot of these, uh, a lot of these sparkle water. So I'm going to use the restroom real fast. So pause real, All quick, right. real quick. Telling you, dude. These uh, whenever I'm not drinking beer, I drink so many of these sparkle water things. I think I just like drinking stuff. Yeah, it, it like satiates the uh, the physical aspect of drinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which which one are you drinking? 
I uh, I got the lime one. It's not my favorite. I like the mango Lacroix. Um, yeah. But I kind of picked up. I was kind of in a rush at the at the grocery store yesterday, and I didn't even think about it. I just saw the. I was like, oh, it's on sale, and I I grabbed it, and now here I. But it's not bad. It's good. I've been big on mineral water. Oh, now is that is that carbonated? Yeah, yeah, like Pellegrino or yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, that's exactly what. It, yeah, mine too. Yeah, they call this uh, this sparkling water. I don't know what the difference is, but there's no calories and no artificial sweeteners, so it's pretty rad. Um, so let's see what we can move on to. Uh, oh, we could move on to Deleuze if you wanted to. We could do Deleuze, or I was just gonna say I was thinking while you were in the bathroom that uh, this section of opening the egg from young, you just read uh, that, that language reminds me of so many experiences uh, on mushrooms. Oh yeah. Yeah. Let's go there. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. Go for it. So it seems, I mean, we've never talked about this before now. Um, It seems we're both uh, sort of uh, adept fans of hallucinogens. Yes. That is accurate. Um, I mean, I don't know about you, but uh, I mean a whole not just not just mushrooms, but um, you know, uh, acid and and particularly DMT. Mm-hmm. In the few times I did it, um, that language that Young used is like is is quite literally like uh, it, it, in sort of the height of the inexplicable insanity of DMT. There's like there's no above you, there's no below you, mm-hmm. there's no gravitational force there's no entropy there's no body weight mm-hmm. there's not even perspective from the brain you just have sort of an oral 360 degree complete comprehension of pure being or pure consciousness mm-hmm. it's like like that line like like who was like why are you talking about being healed i, I was never sick i've always been the sun <laughs> yeah no that's so you know? fucking rad like i'm gonna get i might get that tattooed that would be a badass <laughs> fucking tattoo um, but it's so true. I mean, those uh, you know, when you actually have those experiences, I think it's hard to go back and and even put them into language or explain them to people. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, totally. And I feel like uh, I feel like once you kind of break that wall down, unfortunately, like you can't really get the tube toothpaste back in the tube. You know, um, no. so that is, I think, what keeps most people from doing it. Is they're like, oh, once I do it, I'll be crazy forever and it's like well, yeah kind of um but crazy like a fox crazy in a good way um <laughs> like a fox. yeah so i mean like recently i um I've been, I've been realizing that with hallucinogens there's like different depending on whether or not it's man-made um i've been kind of noticing like the different feels to them because uh, recently i've been uh, messing around with acid more you know especially in terms of volumetric micro micro dosing which isn't really nope. tripping and, uh, yep. but then, uh, my, when my grandmother died about uh, three or four weeks ago, you know, I started having these very, very intense dreams, uh, where in fact, ironically enough, she, uh, appeared as like this geodesic egg. Um, and th- she was like surrounded by these beings with animal heads that all had the geodesic egg and they were placing it into a hole that was meant to represent a, a shoot a long shoot that ended up in a birth canal so it's kind of like a kind of like a uh what is it a reincarnate like slide basically like a well that that's like what terence mckenna talks about in in dmt you have 
you pass through the center of a chrysanthemum, and then you enter, you slide down a silt, like a translucent silver tube or a cord. That's so interesting because with DMT for me, it's always been the intense light, and then there's definitely been some machine elf experience with that. Yeah. Um, but no. See, I, yeah, you've seen the machine elf? Oh, to- yeah, totally, dude. Yeah. Me it, too. I mean, I, I realized I was trying to explain. Like you said, it's totally baffling and sounds incoherent when you try to explain to somebody that's never done it. But, but I was like, for like grasping at, at a way to describe it, I was like, I realized where the, the Pokemon balls came from. Oh, interesting. The, yeah. the, the Pokeballs, yeah. They like they were like like a little bouncing red and white orb, like bounced up near me, and then it broke apart in like ge- in a geometric prism of light, and then the, uh, it was like a vehicle for the machinos. Oh, that's oh, yeah, that's interesting. See, I've never actually been able to make a connection between where the machinos like come from and the beginning of the trip, uh, and I'm not sure if that's faulty memory on my part or if. I was, you know, just over... It felt more like I was just all of a sudden there, you know? Um, but, yeah, no, so ba- uh, just to kind of go back real fast, like, so I basically uh, ate some acid because I was interested in seeing if I could, like, get more in touch with that particular dream image that was shown to me, you know? Um, and I couldn't... Well, that's incredible. Yeah, that... Sorry, I, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. It's just that I, I couldn't actually, like, I couldn't get close to it. And I, you know, I was looking up at the stars i got like this really sweet app on my phone so i was like trying to memorize the constellations while i was tripping balls and i was outside um but what i realized was that if i had wanted to get more in touch with that a better way to go would have been something natural like mushrooms because you know when you're communicating with your consciousness Mm. you probably Mm -hmm. uh you know you want to use things that aren't necessarily man-made because consciousness isn't man-made so anyway that was just the the link that was made there and i was like oh man i, I chose the wrong well, I, hallucination well i love that first of all sorry about uh your grandmother passing oh thanks man um and uh i mean maybe like you said maybe that line of uh of you know i've always been the son and the geodesic egg and and rebirth maybe maybe there, there's a tattoo in there somewhere for you Oh, dude, totally. I love. Isn't it? Isn't it so corny that like I love get. I love the idea of tattooing like life events on the body. Like, I guess <laughs> that might not, speak not to, really might speak to I, vanity. I don't know what that's about, but I love. I love getting. I don't have very many tattoos, you know. I mean, it's just. But it's about. To I happen. don't either. I I have a I have a huge Metatron's cube on my chest. That's tight. Is that your <laughs> only tattoo? Like that is my only tattoo. Oh wow, cool! Would you I'm ever a, get more? I'm a, yeah, I would. I, I I waited this long, you know. Like I grew up in punk and hardcore, and you know, my wife's covered. She's got you know, two dozen, I think. Oh, uh, nice. So she's like, uh, she's like, she's she's envious. She's like, oh, you waited this long, you get to plan out whatever you want to do. So I'm not, I'm not rushing. Right, you know? right, right. That's smart. No, they have to have meaning. But no, I think it like it's like uh, Ray Bradbury's like Illustrated Man. Like if somebody found your corpse in the far future, they'd be able to discern the story of your life by the images on your skin yeah i think that's cool and that's why i feel so bad i'm a huge hip-hop fan you know but the the latest trend in hip-hop and i i fucking hate to sound like an old person and i'm 100 <laughs> i'm 100 not judging but when i see like 17 and 18 year old kids with their faces covered in tattoos i i feel like my parents i'm like oh honey oh geez why why <laughs> so early you know what i mean like it's and it's all in an effort to be like 
it's like one person gets their face tattooed, like one SoundCloud rapper gets a face tattoo, and then they it's just yeah. a, it's a, it's an arms race. You know what I mean? Like who can be the first to be essentially yeah, the, the fucking said, lizard you, man? You saw it creep too. Like other than teardrop, you know, teardrops are old mm-hmm. and you know have their own meaning. And then you know, like Lil Wayne got his eyelids tattooed, I think. Yeah, and then Gucci man and had then, the ice cream cone. And then Gucci got the burr. On, yeah. on the ice cream cone on the side of his face, and I think it, I think it just went off the cliff from there. <laughs> it's Gucci Man's fault. Gucci's <laughs> <laughs> fault. That's hilarious, dude. But yeah, no. And now he's, and now he's sober with brand new teeth, and he's like, "Man, y'all look fucked up." Right, right, exactly. <laughs> no, and it's so, know, why did anybody listen to anything I had to say? And so it's interesting you say you come from like the the hardcore and punk scenes too. So how how do you feel about all this all this brand new fascism? Oh my god, dude! I can't. You want to go there? Sure, why not? Since it's topical. Um, yeah, actually, I mean, uh, to get into it a bit, I mean, yeah, I grew up in the Boston punk and hardcore scene in the late 90s. Um, I was really lucky, you know, like, you know, like I got, I got into punk when I was like 10. Cool. You know, like, um, so, I mean, anti-racist and anti-fascist politics and anarchist politics were sort of natural, but Boston was also sort of this like melting pot of, you know, a million university students from all over the world uh, and a huge, like a really robust um, anarchist working class history. So I was really lucky to just be able to like read books with other super smart people, whether they were like Marxist or anarchist or, you know, anybody in between. Mm. It was just, uh, you know, we would just have intensely theoretical discussions. And then we were, you know, out in the streets. It was sort of like, from post 9-11 to the beginning of the Iraq war and a bit of the, the anti-globalization movement in 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, so I was, I was involved with Antifa in the Northeast for a couple of years and a friend of mine who's a philosophy professor now, um, we were, we were joking about it a little, like a couple, a couple of weeks ago. We were like, man, we were in Antifa like a decade ago. Nobody knew what the fuck it was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and now it's on how it's front page news. Like we yeah. like we were trying to tell everybody this is going to happen. Right. Oh, that's <laughs> nope, so that's interesting, me. man. Can you explain to me real fast um, this anti-globalization thing? That I get confused when I hear the word globalization. Um, so uh, forgive my ignorance, but I figured I'd ask. Like, like what? Like what well, exactly does that mean? Yeah. So um, I mean, in the parlance of like leftist politics, right? Uh, the anti-globalization movement was essentially the resistance movement that that started in reaction to neoliberal trade policies under Clinton. Uh, okay, cool. So, like, when the GATT treaty became the WTO and when Clinton signed NAFTA, uh, when global free trade, uh, led by the World Bank, IMF, WTO, was really, like, rewriting all the rules post-Cold War in the 90s, um, the anti-globalization movement specifically arose to combat that. I see. So, I mean, it had, it had elements of like the environmental movement from the eighties, um, you know, the animal rights movement, the, but, and then, it, and then it was really led by, uh, pretty intensely by anarchists and black blocs. That's badass. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of, of their work, you know? Um, I, and it was crazy. I mean, it's like, it feels like a lot of lost history now, like anything pre nine 11, Mm-hmm. Then it sort of feel like it got bull- like bowled over. Like the internet wasn't big enough yet to like 
nobody can search for those things. I mean, right, right, right. Well, I mean, you know, and, and I feel like I feel like what's so interesting about all this is that I feel like I try not to be too you know pedantic. I don't I don't like to be Mister Actually, you know. Um, but at the same time, it does seem like people forget that you know, no, none of these uh, leader figures are actually our friends, you know. Uh, and it does seem to be like it turns into this weird popularity contest. And I don't know, man, I just, I get uh, weird things happen. And I, I get that I'm kind of taking this in sort of like a weird direction. So if you want to put it back on the rails, that's cool. But I don't know, like, I, I guess I just, I don't know. No, lay it on me. I maybe get, unco- like, like, I don't know. I go back and forth as to whether it's even like a good idea. But to my mind, there are some things that are just wrong and they're, they'll always be wrong. Like, uh, I don't know, slavery, racism, um, murder, things like that. And so I think that people get frustrated online if they ever would, were to talk politics with me because because of those hard lines. And a lot of people seem to be like, well, in politics you make uh, you make deals and you make compromises. And I don't know, dude. Like, So basically what I'm saying is like, I don't fucking trust any of these people. And I don't, and I think that like, what I've seen a lot recently is people looking for like a new daddy and like, who's going to be our, maybe it'll be Kamala Harris now. And it's like, well, she, she has a lot of issues, you know, absolutely private prisons and shit like that. And so it's just, I guess I feel sometimes like a little like know it all or, or something like that. But I just, I can't, I feel like maybe we should be done like compromising on some things. I'm right there with you. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I, I, I think, I think it's just like a critical lack of uh, understanding about the, like the true nature of power. Mm-hmm. Like people tend to think that like representative government is your friend and it, you know, representative government in this country are basically legislators for banks and corporations. Yep. That that's all they are there for. They're, they're only there to administer the laws of private property and, and the management of capital. There, any, any social reform that had ever been passed was a result of years of bloodshed and struggle from the outside in, from the masses in. There was never meant to be representatives for the mass, and there was never law was never even supposed to represent equality. Mm-hmm. It had to be fought for and wrested from power to stop a full-on revolution from ever taking hold. Mm-hmm. Like I don't understand why people, you know, people are so conditioned to hierarchical power now that they just look at it like second nature. Like like today, like they're talking about like. Trump's right back, you know, getting off the both sides thing. He, 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 you know, he wouldn't come out and condemn the white supremacists. Like, of course he was not going to fucking condemn them. There is brown shirts. They're doing his bidding. Yeah. But like the point, I mean, the point is, I don't even bat an eyelash at him, at him not condemning it. It's, I'm actually more, more concerned for the, the centrist, the people who find themselves in the middle, who just keep looking blankly like, like sheep, just blinking mm-hmm. at their, at their leaders, like, expecting when they're going to come to their senses and when they're going to act in the best interest interest of everybody and they're not no so so let's start building something beyond the state let's start building something with art and with with our own communities and our own people uh that does that is you know like you said not compromising let's start to build a world that that's post-capitalist state because it's it's in decline yeah, let's just think bigger. You know what I mean? I yeah. just I, and the thing is, there's that there's that famous tweet that I go back to all the time, where it's like liberalism is basic, or it's like the left is like we should have no more prisons, and then liberalism is hire more women guards. 
Um, That's pretty much it. Yeah. So yeah, so I just get so frustrated, you know, with people who think that like their whole goal is to basically see like a cartoon character that was once white become black, you know, or <laughs> whenever it was and the whole thing. And I 100 percent understand that Trump is a, is a fucking bigot who said that, you know, like trans people shouldn't be, can't be in the military. And I understand overall how that probably affects uh, trans some trans people's uh, sense of self-worth or what have you. But like all of a sudden I see liberals using like jingoistic, typically right wing language like they our men and women should be allowed to serve in the in the armed forces they should be able to serve their country and i'm like wait which side are, why are we talking about serving the country wait what what are we like military is bad all of a sudden yeah. no, wait military is good now like it's well yeah you were you were against two wars when bush was in office and you didn't have anything to say about obama using the drone program for the yeah. past eight years yeah, it's just there's you know? a, there's a complete lack of consistency, right? And then people like us get pinned as like they call us like purity politics people, which is like that's cool. I'm cool with being purity politics, you know. I just yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely had that leveled at me over the years, but I uh, I don't know. I think I've tried in my own way, whether I'm successful or not, I don't know. But I've just tried to um, retool it instead of taking, you know. Um, finite positions and then pulling people sort of polemically toward me. Yeah. I've just kind of gone back to like to critical reason and discourse. Right. You know, like from the Socratic method, like ask somebody enough questions and they'll disprove their own argument mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to, to, you know, and this leads to philosophy and all the way up to Deleuze. If we're we're going to talk about Deleuze. Like I think so much of this problem, this problem is like, you know, some half of what's going on right now is, is like an issue of representation. Like you said, like to, the queer and trans people identity, you know, it's very important to see accurate representations because there's been accurate representations of everybody else, at least who have been sort of like economically viable. Sure. You know, where there's been like an interest to accurately represent somebody. So, so I, I understand that. And that sort of spreads into identity politics. But like one, I mean, the conversation we have to have is like once everybody is faithfully represented, then what are we going to do? Can we get around to this business of revolution mm -hmm. finally? Yeah. You know, yeah, like, exactly. I, you, so, I mean, and representation is so, is such a, uh, ideologically capitalist category. Oh, right? totally if, dude. Where representation is essentially just an extension of the market. So why are we fighting for, for space there anyway, when it's already commodified and we don't even own it? Yeah, no, totally. And I feel like, uh, yeah, if we wanted to transcend to, transition into Deleuze one of the things that really I'm reading anti-Oedipus I am it's been about a week and a half and I am about one quarter of the way through so um so basically I think I read I think I read a thousand plateaus for eight months straight I think yeah yeah I need to take I mean, like you said you gotta take a break dude like, yeah it's, exactly it's a, it's a rewiring of the, of the wires in your brain right and so basically but like the the main point that I get especially from the Foucault intro which was actually really helpful Normally, I don't find Foucault all that helpful, but um, his intro was really great to kind of just like, all right, you're about to read some wild shit, but here's like some guidelines. And yeah, the one thing that I didn't realize that never that hadn't clicked before that finally really clicked with me is how much people love fascism in their lives, like in their everyday life. People want Absolutely. they want a daddy or a mommy like they want all that shit. And it's it's crazy. It's and I see now that I've I've read that I can't unsee it on Twitter. 
and on Facebook and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, right. You can, yeah, you can see it plain as day. Yeah, you, you want you want to get rid of your current set of parents and you want somebody else to adopt you, you know? Um, yeah, so it's just I can't unsee it now. I guess that's my point with that. Well, yeah, well, and, uh, you know, Deleuze sort of came out of the post-Marxist, you know, Paris 68 and um, when he was Foucault's student, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the post-Marxist aspect is that that in itself is, I mean, fascism is essentially what what capitalism does when when it gets scared, mm-hmm. when it has to shore up its defenses, right? So capitalism is always functioning and managing uh, its internal mechanisms of contradiction, and it spirals out crisis. And the more capitalism spirals out crisis, the state has to be liberal and expansive, or it has to be uh, conservative and fascistic, mm-hmm. depending on the contradictions of capital and how it manages capital. So, like, we've gotten so far now into postmodernism, and then, you know, I, I love Deleuze, like, I love Deleuze as his own thing. Like you said, like, separate from Foucault, but also separate from all the other postmodernists that I really don't never gave a shit about. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, because, like, like uh, I guess, I guess you're about to say that, but in, in what way? Uh, you know, for, for Deleuze for me was, was so much about my, my, one of my favorite political Deleuze quotes ever was, uh, we don't have to get rid of the state. We only have to get rid of the state in us. Mm. Yeah. Dude. And, and then when you say that, like, you know, what you just said, when you, once you see it, that people are searching for a new daddy, uh, and you can never unsee it, and people's like addiction and fetishization of power. Uh, that quote from Deleuze, once I read it, I could never unsee it again. Mm-hmm. Because I was like, now what? Now you see even progressive identity politics through a different lens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh no, and it's, well, it's, it's totally a thing of power too. And the, the, the reason why I don't necessarily talk that much about identity politics uh, in particular is because I, don't, I have a lot of friends who that kind of stuff is really important to them and they're people of color you know what i mean so likewise yeah yeah i kind of i kind of but i see what you're saying like basically in its worst form in the form that i think that uh the right in particular likes to portray it as which you know of course there's a level of truth in that uh it is it is based entirely on a struggle around uh power but the power is linked to language games um and it's sort of like a race to the bottom to see if you can put a name on your particular victimhood faster and more effectively than the person next to you and thus have a bigger right to speak and access to power. Uh, but that's just like the most negative aspect of it. You know what I mean? Like it's not the it, whole picture. It is. It is. I mean, like I said, like, um, you know, I think on the surface, uh, uh, identity politics is making, you know, some short term, very necessary gains because it's sort of, it's sort of recuperative and substantive. It's like it's trying to level the playing field in terms of equity totally. of, you know, who gets the the right to control the power of language formation and speech about themselves. Mm-hmm. But like once we get there, like the, going back to that Deleuze quote, we have to stop talking about each other in the language that the state uses to define us. Yeah, totally. Totally. That's what that's my problem. Right. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. I think I think that I think that. uh yeah. Isn't it kind of just to kind of like pull back even a little bit further? Isn't it kind of interesting that so much fighting goes on about what things should or shouldn't be called <laughs> without actually changing them? Right. 
right. you know, substantially changing them. Yeah, right, right, exactly. It's like always. Oh, it's like there's a lot, and I understand the importance of of language games, right? Because something calling the at the, the alt left is ugh, is so fucking stupid. And I know exactly the dumbasses who are going to latch on to that alt left thing. Oh, I just, I just, I just wrote a little rant about it this morning. Oh, really? Like, yeah, I was like, you know, as a if if I need to be answering questions as you know a resident left right. for the day, there there is no such thing as the alt. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for yeah. sure. Yeah, no, it, it's just it's so funny. Like on the one hand. I want to say like, oh, language isn't that important and blah, blah, blah. But the more I think about it, like language is sort of the root of a lot of the conflict, right? Like, like people fight, people argue over what about over words, basically. Like, yeah. And people, people argue over words, using words. Yeah. Which is, (laughs) which is crazy. And it's why I think Twitter fights will drive people completely insane. Like I almost, I got like two or three tweets deep on a Twitter disagreement today, and I was just like, "Fuck it, I'm, not, like, I'm out. I'm, I'm going outside. not doing this because <laughs> I just, you know, I get to a certain point where I realize, like, as soon as I realize that the person that I'm talking to and I are talking about two different things, uh, and and I just I don't really want to engage them on on their thing, and they don't want to engage me on mine. I'm just like, I did have to leave, leave that parting shot. Well, you I, know mean, what I mean, yeah, I mean, there's just there's never a way to win an argument on yeah. social media now. I mean, it's not even. I don't even know. I don't even know what it has to do with discourse anymore. I think it's just a hyper capitalist. Even like even commodified discourse and commodified. Again, this goes back to like Derrida. Like language isn't meaning in itself. Language is also beholden to representation, mm. and representation is now nothing more than a paradigm of capital. Yeah. Oh, that's that's such a tricky spot to be in. So, like, what do you do then? Is it is it just a shift to personal action? Right. I mean, we're building, you know, a, we artists and, and, and I mean, I think individuals are, we're seeing like the growth of what we're going to do mm-hmm. in, in the like early, the early like firing shots of the dystopia, right? Yeah, yeah. Like we're, I mean, we're like, I was, I was writing something about this uh, for Lit Hub actually, so it's been on my mind. I, I've been like, Sussing out these ideas about we're kind of like floating in this post postmodern space, and that hasn't been given a name yet. Mm-hmm. And because like all structures have been destroyed, including in language, it seems like. I mean, look who's in the White House. Like language means everything, and it means nothing now. Mm-hmm. We, we live, you know, everything's been polarized to the point of absurdity. Uh, so what what is what exists? So it's kind of like making this argument that um, you know I reference like Colson Whitehead's book. The Underground Railroad, I reference Lydia Yuknovich and Book of Jones. Um, and I, I, I looped them in because I was talking about why I used myth as a structure in Darkensaw. And uh, I was saying that like new myth makers are returning back to pre-modern, ancient, archaic structures within the DNA of, of human experience and human consciousness because we're going to have to build a world that is going to r- arise out of the ashes of this one. Mm-hmm. I think we're getting ready to do that. I mean, I feel like that's what, you know, like everything is permitted. Nothing's off balance. I mean, nothing's off limits, but also in a weird way, like nothing feels like it matters. Mm. No, I, uh, I definitely, I 
pretty much agree with that 100%. So, I mean, what do you think that looks like then? Does that look like more... Uh, I've, I've been hearing people talk about, you know, the time for dystopian fiction is over. We need to start thinking about utopian fiction, and I'm not sure how much I buy that. Um, but it's what what do you think a, a kind of way forward looks like? I mean, I don't want to spoil your article, but I'm curious. No, I mean, I just brought it up because I was, you know, tinkering with these ideas myself. Mm-hmm. I was literally just like, you know, moving them around and putting, grouping them together and see what, you know, unique new thoughts I had. Yeah. Uh, I have no fucking idea. I think that's what the process of yeah. of, of writing and our art is about, right? Yeah. I think I think we're, we're in the process of discovering it right yeah. now. And if you're dev- and if you're of a more mystical bent like I am, I think that doing your best to make a sort of contact with the, un, uh, the unconscious, you know, and whatever's flowing through that on the, you know, on the big on God's big telephone, you know, and just trying to get in touch with that and represent that through the symbology we have that is language. I think that's probably a more important job than uh than a lot of writers would ever want to say that it is because we try to we have to do the false modesty thing a lot because the alternative is to look like somebody like i don't know norman mailer who's just like just just this pompous (laughs) bastard sitting on a pile of empty beer cans and used condoms you know like just so we we really don't want to look that way so i think we kind of through the 90s and you know the just the saturation in just thick the thick gravy of irony uh we don't want to like maybe give importance to to what we do but maybe it's okay to just a little bit say that maybe it's maybe it's kind of important you know i mean we got uh we got to fight against uh the 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 star warses and the marvel comics of the universe which are are aligning the discourse obviously along intensely capitalistic the customers always write lines rather than any kind of uh, artistic line that, from which you can extrapolate like ways to build the future. Yeah, I mean, and ego aside, you know, I, I feel like there's so many authors right now that are just complete fucking badasses that are mm-hmm. trying something new. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just the, like the, the people have been like, especially social media and representation, people have been shamed into like, you know, feel, feeling terrible for even trying to produce something. Mm-hmm. And like, what does that do except let these big behemoths of power come in and choose like the layout of the landscape for us? Right, right. And no, and I think that there are people out there like like Scott and Blake Butler and Otessa Moshfeg and geez, like the list could go on and on and on. Who to me feel like are, are doing something new and interesting. Yeah. You know. Um, so maybe maybe that's like maybe we yeah. I mean, I'm not really. I'm not so crazy on dystopian fiction as a quote unquote genre, mm-hmm. but like, yeah, we're creating something new and I feel, you know, to bring it back to that, to that mystical or spiritual bent, you know, there's a whole host of information uh, about our existence as conscious beings that we've forgotten. And I feel like we're making a, you know, a gesture to try to remember. Yeah. And I think, I feel like uh, I have this theory that twin peaks in particular is a is a hyper sigil designed to get us more in touch with that through any kind of meditation. Well, I mean, with David Lynch, it's obviously transcendental meditation, but yep. uh, uh, Twin Peaks is in particular. It's such a potent uh, weekly ritual, right? That you sit down to, and you know, it has a beginning and it always has this the same end, right? Where, where I agree. 
And uh, I, I really do feel like it's in like Grant Morrison terms, it's a hyper sigil. And the, the thing that it's supposed to be doing, I think, is is it's acting as like a beacon towards all the writers who've been putting their weird in a box because they see what sells, quote unquote. Uh, and I think it's telling everybody to start unpacking those boxes. Uh, um, well, I was going to bring that up because you, uh, you're a Grant Morrison fan. It, it wasn't, didn't he say the invisible, the act of reading the invisible is the performance of, is undergoing a, a magical rite itself. Right, right. That, so, that the reading of the text is a ritual. So it's a hyper sigil, right? So are you familiar right, with yeah. like, the concept of sigil? Like the, yep. okay, with like chaos magic and it's all very, uh, I call it ooh, wah, ah, 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 like disturbed, you know? Um, <laughs> So it's like my version of woo-woo, but it's like it's like the badass one where chaos magic is so badass because its symbol looks like a ninja throwing star. So I think automatically, like you're like, oh man, this is radical. But when you read it, it's really kind of interesting. Yeah, and the Invisibles was designed as a six-year-long um, hyper sigil in which Grant Morrison inserted himself into the text, and you know, really weird shit started happening. Like he made his character get. Uh, a skin disease and a few weeks later he had like the, a wicked staff infection that almost killed him and stuff right, like that. Right. Um, yeah. And so basically, yeah, like with, uh, I think the fact that David Lynch himself is such a major part of Twin Peaks, like Gordon Cole's character is, is such a figure, yeah, and figure in it, you know, it's, his, it's the criteria of his own. It's the criteria of his own uh, ritual. It's not, it's not a sigil of the chaos magic. Twin Peaks is more, you think it's leading more towards like, like TM. Yeah. I think it's leaning more towards right? that. And I think, I think he is kind of getting us back to, uh, this sort of primordial good versus evil sort of thing that I think, I don't know if Twin I Peaks, think, yeah. I don't think Twin Peaks always had that direction. I think that it literally probably started off as a, as a weirdo murder mystery. Um, but I think in the 25 years that have, uh, followed from the original, from the second season, at least, which I guess he didn't have a whole lot to do with anyhow. Um, he's done a lot of kind of exploring himself, and this is sort of, you know, th there's a lot of, you know, duality and, um, you know, dark roads at night and surreal creatures and things like that that become staples of Lynch's work. But at its heart, like, he's kind of revealed that the Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks in general is a, is a postmodern battleground for good versus evil. And he's presenting that to us in a way that we haven't seen before, but I think will be an inspiration for people to go to go forward and unpack that even more. I think so. I think it's making a lot of similar writers, you know, say, you know, my work's not so weird, but also this is the time for it now. Well, yeah, I mean, I've been kicking you know, around stay, this. Take your claim. Yeah, I've been kicking around this God's Fair No Better thing for three fucking years, and <laughs> after uh, watching, I think it was a, it was around two weeks ago that I started it, and I just started putting the parts of it online, you know, and I'm, it's got a lot of hyperlink text. Yeah. You're, and, you're serializing it right now. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And I, and I, I, the whole thing is that I have no idea where it's going to go. I have no idea how long it's going to be. I just have like five different little story threads that I want to tell, but I'm going to like take my time getting there. But I, literally watching twin peaks, I was like, wait, if he can do this, then I, I just need to get working. <laughs> my shit's not even uh, that weird. So how is that going for you? Is it, do you, do you feel like the process of serializing it in pieces is um, informing it or changing your approach to it at all? Oh, one hundred percent. And the thing that's the mo that's changing it the most is I'm I'm obsessed with hyperlinking text to other stuff. You know, um, mm -hmm. so that's adding a new uh, dimension to the writing because now I'll you know I'll look for 
you know, if I'm writing about coyotes, I might have a hyperlink to a Wikipedia page about coyotes. But in the act of hyperlinking that, I might read that page and find out a new fact that I'll then include back into the text. And so it's this weird uh, sort of symbiotic relationship with the Internet, where as I'm writing it, the Internet's also contributing to it. And it's it's, it's really kind of uh, freeing because, I mean, I just got... I just got kind of tired of sitting down and just writing a story into a blank page. Like that got kind oh, of Oh god, me. I mean, yeah, and you know, I think we might be similar in the same regard that like I'm already so fucking antisocial. Yeah. And prone to depression, like I have to do very stoical things like, you know, like douse my head in cold water and take mushrooms and meditate. And, oh dude. You know, I I have to do so much just to keep myself grounded that like, you know, the isolation of just you and a story alone for three to four years at a time, it, it gets you. Oh, totally. And the thing is, is that, you know, it, it doesn't have to be that way at all. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I was talking to my mother on the phone yesterday and I was telling her about my morning routine. And I realized that from the time I wake up, I don't actually start doing things for like an hour and a half because I meditate and then I pray and then I take, I exercise and then I do like an ice cold shower. And I realized I have this whole thing and it's like, it's my beginning, like scare the demons away, you know, get that, the, the depression out of the head, you know? Yeah. You're putting on your psychic armor. Yeah. And get whatever you want. How long does it take you to wake up? Uh, I, I feel a little disoriented right now. Like one, I'm going through kind of the blitz of the, the release date for the book. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but before that, in the lead up to it, I've had, I've had sort of uh, uncharacteristic insomnia lately. So I've been, my wife goes to bed super early because she's a welder and she gets up at like five. Yeah. So uh, I'll be up and like, I'll read for an hour. I'll, I'll, I'll watch something, but like, there's only so much you can read and watch before you feel like you're half tired enough not to concentrate, but you're still stimulated and wired. Mm-hmm. So I've been in that like weird limbo where I've been going to bed. I haven't been falling asleep till two or three. My wife's alarm goes off at five, five thirty. Oh, I go back to sleep from six to eight and then I have no idea what time it is for the rest of the day. Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand. <laughs> yeah. And that's I'm just... looking forward to moving on from that. So I've been, my sleep's been fucked up. Yeah, dude, I, I get what you mean. Yeah, one of the things that I'm looking forward to moving to El Paso is I liked doing my overnight job as a concierge. I, I would do that like two nights a week, basically. But That third shift? Straight yeah, dude. Night. Yeah, but it was, I mean, it just started fucking with me, you know, after... What? Like how? Well, after a while, it got to the point where I decided, like, my days work better if I wake up early and kind of, like, get moving like yeah. w- with the sun basically <clears throat> so what would essentially happen is I'd, I'd have five days a week where that would be the case and then i'd have to essentially stay up for two days straight you know to be able to be awake for the third shift and also to do the next day but then to be and tired it enough to wreck, sleep. it would wreck your whole schedule yeah right? so it's just it's just this two-day little speed bump you know that yeah. um where I don't, I don't even like really get things. I, I used to think of it like, oh, cool, writing time. But you know, when it's three thirty in the morning and I'm used to being asleep, I'm basically just sitting there zombified. So, uh, yeah, sleep is like super important. I think consistent sleeping schedules. Um, I know we probably have to wrap it up in a minute, but on a, a related note to third shift jobs and LSD, uh, I when I lived back in New Hampshire, where I'm from, uh, I had a third shift job where I cleaned a hospital at night. And one night, I I cleaned the hospital uh, on acid. Oh wow, that's interesting. What was that like? 
<laughs> it was so, uh, I mean, I guess it would be like what people think it would be. You're the only person in a dark hospital, uh, you know, with the smell of alcohol, rubbing alcohol and syringes and, and operating tables and, yeah. uh, you know, but, um, the weirdest part, the memory that I took away was, uh, there's all these, um, public and, uh, service announcement and like, you know, uh, health code uh, posters, like wash your hands to stop the spread of infectious diseases, you know, don't cough on people. Right. It, it, there's all these posters that are like PSAs. So I was on a floor, like the third floor that was the pediatric wing, and they had like a little uh, mini children's castle where they like could like play with blocks and stuff mm-hmm. while the kids waited. Mm-hmm. And there was, a, there was a laminated sign next to the, to, to the little castle that said, Literally the most euphemistic, bizarre language ever, and it never left my mind. It was like the castle. The castle is for healthy children only. The castle is not for for sick children. Sick children are not allowed in the castle. And then it said at the bottom, they, they have books to read instead. What the <laughs> fuck, man? <laughs> I'm just standing there in the pitch black on acid, alone at three in the morning, going. Like this, this announcement. This is training for our entire civilization. Yeah. Like only the healthy are allowed inside the castle. The the sick, the sick and the meek have books to read instead. What the fuck, <laughs> I, man? Oh man, yeah, that was, was revolutionary. Well, that's a big thing that could be unpacked, and I honestly I can't believe it's already been an hour, dude. Like that was probably the fastest podcast I've ever done. Um, <laughs> so I'll have to have you back. Basically, yeah, man, we we could we could totally do a round two. It'd be tons of fun. Well, let me ask you: uh, Are you still are you still in Portland and you're moving to Texas? That's right. Yeah, I move basically. Essentially, what the way my timeline looks right now um, is that I'm going to finish up my next part of God's Fair No Better, finish up my newsletter, make sure this podcast is ready to rock and roll on Thursday, and then from then, I just I'd have to completely focus on moving. Because uh, today I kind of like took stock of all the stuff I have to do, and I was like, "Oh shit, I gotta get moving! Like I got two weeks to do this shit." So, yeah. Uh, well, I'm sure you'll be crazy busy with moving, but I'm uh, I'm reading at Powell's Thursday the 24th. You oh. gonna be out of town already? No, I won't be out of town. Yeah, dude, I'll see. I'll, I'll definitely like. I'll definitely. I'll make it. I'll make. Oh it yeah, it's gonna, be, it's gonna be a great reading. It's a, with Suzanne Burns and Lance Olson. Oh, tight. Yeah, that will be good. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for the invite. I'll definitely be there then. Yeah, I'll get to see you uh, in person um, before you head to Texas. Right on, right on. Well, hey, man, thanks again for the time. And uh, I just want, before we uh, stop this, everybody who's uh, listening to this, uh, I'm going to put it in my newsletter too, but Dark and Saw is really worth picking up. So you did you did great work, man. Thanks, brother. That was tons of fun. Let's do it again. All right, later, man. Bye. Well, there you have it, folks. That's the interview with Jared Middleton. I've uh, realized that I keep forgetting to put little call to actions at the end of the podcast, which is something that I'm going to try to do more and more often because I feel like I kind of front load it with information and then the conversations go sort of all over the place. And by the end of it, you might be thinking about a lot of different stuff, but you might not actually be thinking about the, um, the author or their work. So I just want to take this opportunity to remind you that uh, Jared Middleton's book is called Darkensaw, like the state Arkansas, but with a D in front of it. See what he did there? It's from Dezank Books. It's available on Amazon.com. I'm sure it's probably available on Dezank's website as well. Um, but 
I just want to let you know that I do highly recommend that book. Um, I'm going to try as best I can on this show to be completely honest with you. And I don't necessarily want to have guests on whose work I don't enjoy. Um, but I don't want it to become this thing where, you know, the last episode had Scott McClanahan on. And of course, like the Sarah book is probably one of the best books of the year. I think Jared's book is also one of the best books of the year. So it can get a little sneaky and a little suspect when every guest that I have on, I'm like, oh, and then of course it was Monica Drake before, who really is and has been an inspiration for me since I was in fucking high school. So when you have that many people in a row and I tend to use the word the best too much. It might sound a little bit weird, but at the at, at this back matter, I'll try to just be as as real as I possibly can, and hopefully I don't piss anybody off. But I do think that Jared's book is really worth checking out. It's called Dark and Saw. Uh, I think that if uh, you wanted to uh, maybe support this podcast a little bit, um, you could do that through Patreon. Still don't really know what I would do in the way of rewards, but uh, the way I see it is Patreon is kind of a tip jar. If you enjoy what you hear, um, you know, maybe a dollar a month wouldn't be too bad to, to, to drop in the, in the bucket there. Um, I see how many of you listen to this thing. I know how many of you there are out there, but that's okay. I listen to a lot of stuff that I don't give any money to as well. So, you know, if this program doesn't happen to be in your top five and, you know, your budget's already used up on different Patreon, cause I mean, everybody and their fucking mom has a Patreon these days. So, you know, if your Patreon budget is already maxed out, I 100% understand um but if it's not hey give me your money throw throw money at me um i like money it doesn't even have to be a whole lot you know just enough to kind of cover the uh monthly costs of doing business um so yeah so anyway thanks so much for listening Jarrett middleton's book is called dark and saw you got to check that shit out it's from Dezank books and next week we will be back with uh Matthew Rivera, who's got a new book from Broken River now called Human Trees. But that's for next week. This week, go look at Jared's stuff. He's a cool guy. You know that. You just listen to this. Okay. Bye. I hope your day's going swell. <laughs>